Welcome to episode 10 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and, and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. So today we have something a little bit different. The bulk of our episode is going to be a conversation that I had with Layla about writing. And so we talk about her process, the differences between academic and popular writing, and writing and mental illness. So I think that you'll really enjoy that. But first, we want to talk a little bit about our pledge drive, which has been going on since June. So right now, we're a little past the halfway point, and we just wanted to talk a little bit about the drive and what your support as a patron can do for Lady Science and why we think it's worth the investment. So in case you don't know, the pledge drive is just our um, campaign to convince you to become a supporter on Patreon. Um, and our Patreon funds a big, big, big chunk of our operating budget, and we would like to have most of our operating budget come from Patreon. Otherwise, we do sort of one-time fundraising, and which is extremely time-consuming. Last year, it sort of ate up a whole couple of months for us in the fall. Um, Patreon frees us up much more. Um, and it's really easy also to become a patron and easy for you to use. It's a kind of set and forget thing um, where you just set up a pledge and then Patreon will uh, charge you every month and you don't have to do anything until you want to cancel, but you would never want to cancel on Lady Science. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you can pledge as little as $1, and that really helps us as well. Um, so I just thought we could talk a little bit about what do we even need money for? What do we spend it on? <laughs> uh, well, one thing, the reason that we can even have a podcast, it was because we had money from our patrons when we started this last year. So um, what we launched the Patreon in January 2017, right? Yeah, January or February. Yeah, so like that. <clears throat> last last year at the beginning of 2017 was when we launched it, and we started out with not a whole lot, just like probably $100 a month-ish, um, but that was enough to, over a couple of months, saved up to get us the equipment that we needed to actually bring you a podcast that was not recorded on our laptop microphones. Um, even though I understand it might be confusing, the first couple episodes might have sounded like that um, because we didn't actually learn how to work said equipment when we spent the money on it. Um, but now we know how it works. Um, I was just saying we've been able to buy uh, even more equipment to make this sound even better. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, like if you listen to all the episodes, you know, in sequence, you'll tell that we gradually figured out how things work. Um, but yeah, so that you even get a Lady Science podcast is because we started out, even if it was a small, small amount that we had in the bank, it was enough to get us going on doing this podcast. So that's one thing that we definitely use the money for. Yeah, and, and I think it's also important, like the, what makes patrons so important and uh as opposed to i mean one-time donations are obviously great uh but what makes patrons even more valuable is the knowledge of consistency um of we know how much money more or less we're going to be getting and that allows us to do things like hire people who get paid on a regular basis 
uh, to do stuff for Lady Science. Um, this is a selfish point because I am one of those people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rebecca wants to make sure that she keeps getting a paycheck every month. So I know, help, help a lady out here. It'd be great. <laughs> and, uh, but also uh, KJ, our social media person, um, gets paid the same way that I do. And as we increase our patronage, um, we're able to hopefully increase uh, our staff and be able to do more and more things consistently uh, in a way that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say that for mine and Layla's mental health, if nothing else, like we have to continue paying (laughs) Rebecca and KJ because I cannot take on and neither can Layla the stuff that we have given to them to do. once more like that's how we started doing everything ourselves we can't do that anymore yeah, yeah. so yeah i don't want to go back to that dark place <laughs> was... i'm happy to have led you out of that dark place <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i let me explain a little bit about how aside from like operating fees and paying for our website and merch and shipping merch and stuff like that our money goes towards that but i want to talk a little bit about how we pay people Um, and why we need more money so that we can pay people more. (laughs) Um, So what we've got going on right now is we've got uh, KJ, like Rebecca said, who does our social media, and then Rebecca, who's our managing editor. And both of them are kind of hands on deck, more or less all the time. I mean, they get to sleep and they have weekends and stuff. (laughs) But... um, so that's why they get the monthly stipend that they get. Um, we do have contributing editors and they get paid when they write for us. And then they once in a while will edit pieces that we put out in the monthly issue and use their kind of expertise um, in, in that regard for the magazine. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so they get paid um, for their writing that they do for us on a regular basis. Um, and so right now the way that we pay those editors and the way that we pay our writers is kind of split between us and our lady science money and the new inquiry. So almost two years ago, we started a partnership with the new inquiry, which has been really helpful for us to reach into a new audience that we wouldn't have been able to tap into without it. So what we do with our monthly issues is that we publish them with Lady Science, and then we also syndicate them on the new inquiry website. And so because of that syndication, we're able to pay the people who write for our monthly issues. So we don't actually pay for those. We, we uh, People pitch us and we assign them and we edit them and post them, but the payment for those actually comes from the new inquiry. So thank you, new inquiry, for allowing us to start paying writers. That was when we were first able to be able to do that. Um, Now we also have the blog on our website where we do lots of different kinds of writing, not just those historical researched pieces. We've run um, two different memoir series at this point. We write a lot of pop culture. We have um, lady science takes on the news, things like that. We pay for those. And we're able to do that with the Patreon money, one-time donations that we get throughout the year. Um, the money that we got from that pledge drive back in October. So our money is kind of split. But what we would really, really like to do is not just be able to pay people more, but be able to be the ones paying for those monthly issues and take that off of the new inquiry. Um, Not because we're not grateful for what the new inquiry has done for us, but we want to increase that fee. And we want to be able to host all that content ourselves. So that's kind of how the paying is happening right now. So we've got some transparency going on about what, where that, where that's going. Um, and then also what we want to be able to do with more, um, a more sustainable monthly operating budget. Right. One of uh, one of the things, uh, that's been happening recently, that's a great problem to have, but also speaks to why, um, increased patronage is so important is that we, you guys, uh, everyone might've noticed that we keep opening and then very quickly closing our submissions, uh, for essays. And that's amazing because more and more people want to write for us and more and more people want to write different kinds of things for us. Uh, but at a certain point we sort of 
hit capacity with what we are able to put out there, um, both in terms of who we can pay, but also in terms of the amount of editing we have to do. And so I think that as we as we grow, like we really we really want to grow as as a magazine, but and there's like we have the capacity to do that in terms of people power, but we don't necessarily have the capacity to do that in terms of money. Um, so I think that, uh, there's a great opportunity there where, uh, as we get more money, we can really, uh, expand the amount of writing that we're putting out and the kinds of writing that we're putting out. Yeah. And I'll just say, um, just by way of wrapping up a little is that it's really important to us, um, to pay writers basically as much as we possibly can. Um, we're all writers and we all understand the value of that labor. And um, it's it was really important to us to be able to start paying writers anything at all. Um, but our next goal is to be able to raise those fees so that they're um, sort of more consistent with a kind of market rate for this kind of writing um, in order to be able to schedule things in advance and do any kind of planning for the future, um, patronage is the best way for us to um, be able to do that um, because then we have some some security for the future and we can we can promise people things <laughs> like getting paid. <laughs> yeah. And I want to say also there's nothing more kind of depressing for me and Anna when we're trying to assign a story to a writer and we tell them that all we can offer is $50. And they respond with, that's less than they normally work for, <laughs> which we understand. Like, that's right, not like a, a yeah. how dare you rebuke our valuable $50. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, because I, I would have a hard time writing for just $50 as well. And I have before, but I've also done that going and knowing that it was a small magazine and they were really trying to do what they could. Um, and that's kind of the place where we're coming from. We don't run ads on the website. Um, and we don't, all of our content is free. And so we don't have subscriptions. We don't have like paywalled, any paywalled content. Um, so really every single thing, every single dollar that we get comes from listeners and readers. Um, and so if anything, don't put me through having to <laughs> have that conversation with a writer or have a writer turn us down because all I could offer is $50. Um, and, and people are, you know, they're doing new original research. They're doing interviews. They're, uh, in some cases, doing new reporting. Right. And it's... It's so it's I mean, not obviously like the writing itself is really significant, but people are putting like even more hours into this. Right. Uh, than than the literal writing of it. And right. you don't want to think about it in terms of what, it, what they're getting paid per hour if they're getting paid fifty dollars at the end. Um, because it will just make you sad and it already has made me sad. Just think, just saying that. Right. Uh, so the, the ability to, to open, um, to increase those fees is, is really important. Yeah. And I also want to say something about, um, like the personal essays and memoir pieces that we've run that those are not necessarily, you know, thoroughly researched or, um, in, include reporting and interviews, um, just because that's not what the point of those essays are. Um, but the emotional labor that goes into turning out a piece like that. So I edited six personal essays about women writing about their medical pain um, and the horrific experiences that they encountered with the medical system because of that pain. So not only did they have to go and rehash that when they wrote it, but then they also had to go through an editing process where they had to revisit that. Or there were times where I'd say, I don't want to push on you too hard, but this isn't clear. So right. that means that, you know, that they would have to revisit that again and try to flesh out that experience in a way that someone else can understand. So it's also for pieces like that, the intense amount of emotional labor that can go in to bringing that piece into the world is also a lot. 
And um, I'll just say that we pay the same for everything, so we don't. <laughs> yeah, every all all of our writing is commissioned at the same rate right now. So um, we'd like to keep doing that because we believe that that personal writing that involves that kind of emotional labor it just takes just as much work and is just as valuable as a reported piece or a researched historical essay. So we want we want to be able to, you know put our money where that particular belief is as well. Yeah. Like we're working really hard to have a less exploitative publishing model here. Um, And it's really hard. And (laughs) (laughs) uh, so um, just understanding that when you're consuming content, that it's actually not free for the people who brought it to you. Um, And, you know, just keep that in mind when you're consuming content to consume content responsibly. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess um, before we get to my discussion with Layla about writing, we'll just say if you would like to contribute to our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash ladyscience. Even a $1 pledge is incredibly helpful and we so appreciate your support. Um, If you do prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do that at ladyscience.com slash donate. Yeah, we're not going to turn our nose up at one-time donations. Keep those coming, too. We could just talk casually. That may not be possible, though, since we're recording it. Yeah. (laughs) So, I guess, can you just sort of talk about your background as a writer? How did you even become a writer? Why is it that you do that for a living now? Um, Well, I guess I didn't ever really intend to be this kind of writer. And it was just the thing that I did when I left uh, after I got my second master's degree. Um, I was a fairly good academic writer uh, in grad school. And I was able to transfer those good writing and research skills into um, more casual writing for a general readership when we started Lady Science. Um, And so through Lady Science, actually, since for the first year, obviously, you know, we wrote everything. And so it gave us a lot of practice with writing really good scholarship for a different kind of audience. And so it kind of just grew out of that. I do want to just talk about like your specific process and we'll get into like, you know, as nitty gritty as you want. But um, so like the first question that I have and that I get from my students a lot is like that it's difficult to come up with an idea of what to write, obviously, just in general. How do you decide? I think that maybe sometimes people assume that writers are just like full to bursting with ideas and I'll never have time to get to all of them, but I think that's not the case for me. (laughs) So what's the process of finding and building an idea? Yeah. uh, This idea that there's a brick of genius that just like falls from the sky uh, is, isn't really, I mean, I'm sure there are some people that just constantly have good ideas. um, But it's not just about having a good idea. It's then going and looking up to see if anybody else has also had that good idea. And if they have, well, what can I add to that? What, what type of angle can I bring to that thing that's already been written about? Um, and I think that in academia, especially in grad school, and even in undergrad to some degree, is that we're taught that your idea has to be 100% original and you have to be well-versed in the whole historiography of that specific idea. And, you know, it's, it's not really realistic. <laughs> um, and it's certainly not realistic when you're writing on a deadline to have some sort of original research every single time. But what you can do is that you can bring your unique perspective and your individual knowledge base and knowledge set 
to that idea and try to work it into an angle that hasn't actually been thought about before. So even if you're not introducing a reader to a new idea or a new historical figure, you know, that they've never heard about, and you're just plucking this person out of obscurity and, oh my gosh, who is this person? Um, at least you can try to find a way to get them to think about familiar people and familiar material in a different way. Um, and that in and of itself is pushing a conversation forward. And I think that in and of itself adds to historical scholarship as well. So um, there definitely is, when you're deciding what to write, that goes into it. What kind of fresh angle, what kind of fresh perspective can I add to this conversation that's already here? Um, but that does require a good amount of looking around um, and seeing what's out there. Um, and that goes for whether you're writing like the pieces that I do for um, Smithsonian. And that goes for if you're writing something for an academic audience as well. You still need to go and find what else is out there. Because you can't have a fresh perspective on something if you don't know what's there. You, even if you have, you've done your, you've, you have your idea, you've done your looking around, you've seen what's out there, you think you have this um, original angle on something, um, you might find that actually this angle doesn't work. This, this, this thing that I was exploring, this avenue that I was exploring is kind of a dead end now. Um, that doesn't mean that the exploration has to stop. It just means that you need to take a different avenue and that that's fine too. Like at, with lady science, you know, like we'll get a pitch for one thing and we're like, oh yes, this is great. Let's do it. And then once the writer starts working on it, they'll email us back and be like, well, actually that thing that I pitched isn't quite working out, but what about this instead? Um, and I've done that too with my editor at Smithsonian, there was an angle that maybe I thought was going to work when I pitched it. And then when I started writing, it didn't really work out. Um, it wasn't maybe as interesting <laughs> as I thought that it was going to be. Um, or the argument that I thought that I had when I found more evidence just wasn't going to be a good argument anymore. Also this, cause I do make a distinction between making an argument and exploring an idea and that a lot of times with the stuff that I write for Smithsonian, I'm not necessarily trying to make an argument and really trying to explore uh, a larger historical concept through the profile of an individual person's life. And that um, in grad school and definitely in different kinds of essays that I've written um, for a general public, you do you are making an argument, um, but you don't always have to either. Um, that sometimes you can explore, that you can raise questions that you don't necessarily have answers to. Well, I know this varies depending on, you know, whether or not your editor is on their game and is telling you, you know, oh my God, I forgot that we had to do this. So you have to turn this over in a week. Like how long does it take from like, okay, I, I have an idea. I'm gonna, so I'm gonna start my initial research process to see what that idea could ultimately be to um, send, I'm emailing copy to my editor I'm filing how mm -hmm. long you know yes like how, what's the fastest you could possibly do something like that <laughs> the fastest that I have done it is four days uh I don't if you don't have to do that I don't recommend doing that <laughs> ever um, I mean, usually editors will are pretty flexible of when they're going to ask for something. Like, I've never had an editor be like, I need this, you know, by the end of the week. And it's like Tuesday, you know, they'll usually let me determine something within reason. Like, well, what about sometime in May or something like that? You know, um, usually editors are pretty flexible. Um, which can be good or bad, depending on what kind of person you are. Um, so actually, I, I have a really hard time with unstructured time. Um, and <laughs> because I think a lot of it's because I do have anxiety. And maybe we can talk a little bit about what it's like to write with mental illness. Um, because that actually does play a lot into my process, um, having to have a process while having <laughs> those problems. Um and uh, 
So it really depends on the editor. I've written a piece where it was like a time sensitive piece. It was newsy. It needed to be done within the next 48 hours for it to still be relevant. And so it really depends on what you're writing. So something like that was not research heavy. That was kind of a personal essay making a cultural argument about something that was happening in the moment. So, you know, those things, especially if I'm like angry about it, I can write them pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But for the researched ones, I usually, I get a month with Smithsonian and that's usually enough time. Um, And that's even with some procrastinating going on and having a full-time job and other writing duties and lady science duties on top of that. So, well, I want to, I want, you know, I want to, let's, while we're thinking about it, let's talk about being a writer and mental illness and anxiety, because that's something that I experience as well. And I think that might be the case for some of my students or other people who are interested in this. And I think it's an important thing to talk about. And if you're willing to talk about it, I think we should do it. Sure. Yeah, I'm totally up for that. Um, so, yeah, so writing with uh, writing with depression and anxiety, and then both of them at the same time, <laughs> can really do a number on you. Um, and I found like having unstructured time, like the times when I've had the the most unstructured time, is when I've been the worst writer. Um, because I have more time as an anxious person to get hung up on details that don't matter. That it'll take me a week to write a three sentence lead instead of doing the research that I needed to be doing for the rest of the piece. Or I'll, I will get caught in that mindset of I have to know everything all of the time. I have to make sure I fit every single person into this piece I have to fit every single fresh angle into this piece. And um, I get hung up on that. And as someone with anxiety, that it, it, it makes you get caught in a loop and it's hard to break out of it. Um, it's really hard, especially because writing and research is very isolating and you don't have someone else there to insert themselves into that loop to disrupt it. And so you have to find ways to disrupt it yourself if you can even recognize that it's happening. (laughs) Um, Which is why, like, um, for me, like, having you, Anna, as a writing partner, when uh, we're working on something together, we're doing lady science together, um, it really helps to have someone that you can trust to talk to in those moments when you do realize that you're stuck or you do realize that you're you're having really bad anxiety. to be able to let somebody know because um, it's almost like a release valve, <laughs> like just letting a little, if you can just let a little bit of that pressure off with somebody, like that helps me enormously. Oh, absolutely. And I'll say that like um, cultivating like our friendship and writing partnership is different for me than other relationships because we have a kind of shared language specifically about like writing and depression and anxiety. And I, I really recommend that if that's something that's possible for you to develop as a writer, having a, a partner like that, because there are just like, there are like certain sort of like key phrases and words that we will say to each other that kind of like tip each other off to like, <laughs> oh, are you okay? Yeah. Are you <laughs> Are you freaking out? <laughs> Are you doing okay? You yeah. said the bad word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really helpful. Um, but yeah, definitely letting yourself have too much unstructured time when it comes to writing um, is can be really bad for the actual piece itself. Um, and also just for yourself, the longer, the more unstructured time that you have, the more you have to wring your hands over details that don't matter. And then the piece doesn't get written and then you feel even worse and it just turns into a vicious cycle. And I think that a lot of times writer's block becomes a stand-in for 
having anxiety about writing. And I think that like, because I've seen people say that writer's block isn't real. It's really just because you're afraid to write bad words or you're afraid to make that junk first draft like the rest of us do. And I mean, that might be part of it for me, but that's definitely not the entire fear of why I get writer's block. Um, A lot of it does have to do with um, the ultimate kind of fear of this piece being rejected by my editor, of being rejected by um, people that I admire and respect, you know, um, this new awesome fear since I started being a woman writing on the internet is the type of, uh, a harassment that I might get from a piece, uh, also feeds into anxiety for writing for me, especially the things that I write about. Um, so, uh, I think that like writer's block isn't just because you're afraid to write bad words. I think it's like legitimate fears about, the process, legitimate fears about success and failure um, that get just focused on writing a lead. <laughs> yeah. And I think that um, you have to get over your fear of writing the garbage first draft is slightly misleading in that I'm not afraid of writing a garbage first draft. I'm afraid that when I turn in my final draft, it will be the garbage first draft. Mm-hmm. Like... Like, it's not a matter of, like, I have to get all the bad words out and then I have the good words are under there. I'm afraid all of them are bad and that there's no, um, there's no floor to how bad my writing could be. It's, it's, uh, garbage words all the way down. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Well, and I think that that, um, also feeds into my problems with depression as well is, like, um... When I, when I'm having a really particular depressive episode that like, um, I, I, I don't like myself. Like I, I, I've, I've looked myself in the mirror before and said, I hate everything about you. So that easily transfers over into the product that you're supposed to be delivering to the world because it does turn into like, well, what if this is it? What if this is my best self? You know, like everyone's like, oh, just be your best self. What if this is my best self? And I hate it. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> uh, it, it, it's uh, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy uh, being a writer and having these, these mental health issues. Um, it, it helps also if you have an editor, for me anyway, that I trust in, you know, the case of your students, having a teacher that you trust to be able to say, I actually am, I'm, I'm having a really hard time with my anxiety on this. Um, I'm having a depressive episode and I just, I can't get it out. Um, so I think that that's really important and a lot of people don't have that. And so like, if you fear what your editor is going to think or what your teacher is going to think, it's going to make it worse. Um, so it's really important that if you're like teachers and editors, if you're in like positions of power over writers to let them have uh, the room to be able to let you know, they don't have to bear their soul to you. Um, and you shouldn't ask them for that. You shouldn't ask them to, to believe them. Um, but I mean, there's just been times, like there was a piece that I'd been working on for Smithsonian and it was bad. Like it was like 600 words over the word count. <laughs> and I could not, and my anxiety really ramped up with trying to get that word count down. And I, it, I was just like hacking at it. And then it turned into something that I didn't even recognize anymore. And so I sent two drafts to my editor and I was like, I can't actually anymore. And she was like, great, no problem. You know, (laughs) I'll take it from here. I'll take it from here. And like, that's, that's really, really helpful. So there are people that you think you can trust with that information, you know, go for it let them know that's been huge for me having 
like the the writing at least relationship that we developed is that like just knowing that I could run something by you actually alleviates a lot of anxiety because like I trust you to help me get out of a jam or uh, gently reduce the number of clauses in my sentences you know without making me feel bad about it and it's like um for me it's like uh having a xanax in your bag when you're flying i don't ever take it but i always have one with me just in case so like even for stuff that i'm not writing that that is specifically going to be edited by you for lady science or what have you like just knowing that like uh i could i could send it to you and just be like i am lost (laughs) please get me out of the weeds like it gives me this sort of like confidence to just like get in there and start doing it and I know that if I get in trouble have someone to help me we're kind of already talking about editing but um let's just get into that I think a little more specifically well I think that when I first started editing for uh lady science and I mean I think our editing styles I mean we don't really edit a whole lot together anymore so I don't actually know if they're the same anymore or not. But <laughs> yours is the good one, mine's the bad one. <laughs> I doubt that that's true. Um, but I used to leave like kind of copious notes because I was transitioning. I used to be a writing teacher, you know, not just a history. I taught writing. And so like <laughs> I would transition really quickly into uh, being writing professor, you know. And um, I think that that has its place in that if someone's publishing for the first time, I think that it does kind of deserve a little bit more explanation of what you're doing to that piece and why. Um, Because one, that's probably the last time that they've been edited by someone was a professor who did that for them. Um, And it can be really, really, really jarring to go into a... with a professional editor for the first time and they just like go in and they move your sentences around, they move paragraphs around and they take things out and put things in. And it feels like a violation of your sacred piece that you handed (laughs) over to them. Um, when that's really just like, that's how it's done. Um, so I think the first time that that happened to me, um, with a professional editor, uh, it, I didn't really know how to respond to that. And I, because I didn't really get an explanation, like, because they treated me like I was a professional writer. So thank you, but probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, (laughs) Probably shouldn't have given me that much credit. Uh, So it was like, it was confusing for me. I didn't understand some of the lingo um, that professional editors use for journalists. Um, So I had to look up a lot of it and it was really, really difficult. And so I wish that in that case, uh, it's not their fault. They didn't know, Uh, you know, how I needed to be handheld. Uh, <laughs> so I wish that I had gotten a little bit more feedback in that. And so like, I know now that if we're getting a writer who is a first time writer or a first time person being published outside of their own personal blog or whatever, uh, that I tend to give a lot more notes. Other ones that are seasoned writers that have gone through this before, I just, you know, unless I need something from them, like I have questions or I need uh, them to actually reframe an argument, I'll give detailed stuff about that. But if I'm just like moving sentences around, cutting out a lead paragraph that doesn't work anymore or something, I don't explain that. I just do it. Yeah, I just, I have like a very distinct memory of looking up the term nut graph when (laughs) Paul was editing me at the Atlantic and being like, I'm a tiny baby. What am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> They're real people. <laughs> I tell look at TK. Because hmm? <laughs> when Paul edited me, so Paul's the uh, one of the science editors at The Atlantic. Uh, I guess he was my first experience with uh, your first time. My first experience. This poor man can't be what. <laughs> and here I am talking about my first experience with him. Oh, God. Uh, Sorry, it was just like TKs all over the place. And I was like, what is that? What is this? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. 
poor guy. He really, he stuck that one out, man. Mm -hmm. He was super nice. He was. And like, I did that thing where I posted my roundup at the end of the year and I thanked him for being really nice and patient with me. And then he did the nicest thing that any editor can ever say, which is he lied about me on Twitter and said that (laughs) I didn't need much guidance. And I was so grateful to him. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess the way that I've been edited has definitely changed me as an editor that I've gotten from being, you know, a professor type of editor to being like an act, like an editor. Um, and part of that is, uh, knowing as much as you can, the writer, um, knowing as much as you can about them, not personally, but like understanding hopefully where they're coming from. There's nothing worse than as a, person of color or woman of color or a queer person to explain yourself to an editor who doesn't share your identities and um like never be that editor just don't be that editor you know like if you're at this point like my editor at smithsonian knows exactly what i'm gonna say <laughs> uh and uh is cool with that And, um, it's really nice when you have that relationship with an editor. Um, but a lot of editors don't come from a place like that. I don't think like a place of understanding of their writer, um, and don't really care to, that always helps is when you have, uh, an editor who is like that. And I've, I've tried really hard to do that too, is that when I'm making comments or asking for something that I'm not framing my question in a way to where they feel like they have to defend their argument, um, or defend why they're talking about race or why they're talking about, uh, gender or, uh, disability or anything like that, that that's just not something that they have to defend to me. Okay, so we're going to wrap up here in a minute with an annoying thing. But first, we just want to talk to you just a little bit more about the pledge drive. Um, Just so we can give you an idea of um, what kind of stuff we want to make, what kind of content we're making, and why we think it's important. And a little bit more about the platform that we're building and... um, why it needs your support and why it's valuable. So one of the things that I think is something that's been really cool to watch, which maybe we didn't necessarily intend when we built this thing almost four years ago. Holy crap. (laughs) 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 Oh man. Um, Is that it's become kind of a space where we've brought historians and scientists and just general interested people into a conversation um, that we launched it. Mainly with um, the support and readership of historians, just because that's where we came from. That's where we knew that's who we knew. Um, those were the networks that we had. Um, and it very quickly grew beyond that. And as a historian of science who felt like the work that I was doing was important for scientists to know, very few times does what's happening in history of science actually make it to scientists, I think. Um, and so it's been really awesome to actually see that happen here with Lady Science. Um And so I think that that's been very valuable that we've been able to bring these different audiences and readers into the same space to be exploring the same content that we're putting out there. Um, So that's been something that I think has been really cool and really special about Lady Science over the past couple of years. And it's just keeps growing, I think, in that way. Uh, Yay. 
Uh, yeah, so I, uh, as, as one of those people who was welcomed into the lady science fold from not really a history of science place, or, I mean, I ended up kind of in part of the, in, in the history of science circle, but, uh, I really come from the public history world, um, world of museums and historic sites and other kinds of ways that history is, uh, created with and uh, communicated to the non-academic public. Uh, and one part of public history that uh, can, I think, even for many public historians, be easy to set aside, uh, but that I think is important to the field uh, and to any communication of history with the public is critiques of the way that history is made and written and who gets to write it and uh and the way that academia that um academia is structured and history and academia is structured and lady science is just such an amazing example of uh creating scholarship that is accessible to large numbers of people and also very meaty um, those, those two things never, this is, uh, the group of people that put lady signs together, uh, are never a group of people who would see those two things as mutually exclusive, which unfortunately a lot of people think if something is accessible, that means it's also super shallow. And that is not the kind of work that we create here. And I find that to be really special, but also the idea that embedded in everything that we do is a critique of how these things are done, uh, and it's it's a real like it, we're not the only people thinking about that. Goodness knows, but it's still pretty rare and pretty special. And I love you guys, and I love being part <laughs> of this community. <laughs> Sorry, there was no way to end that without being like it's just it's wonderful. <laughs> um. And I will say that um, while we are not the only publication thinking along these lines that Rebecca outlined, as far as I know, we are the only publication who does that specifically focused on women and gender in the history of science. So yes. and pays um, and pays. Yeah, we're niche yeah. in that way. <laughs> um, so I suppose worth protecting in the way an endangered animal is. I don't know. <laughs> The other thing that Lady Science does that's related to these critiques is is looking at history as a social justice project. And uh, I think that our, our, our like really deep commitment to that is another one of those things that, that makes us unique. And um, science and medicine and technology just like they, they permeate all of our lives and they they shape uh, just about every single narrative related to the modern age. And uh, looking at those things through complicated lenses and critiquing them and analyzing them uh, is, is so important. It's something that I'm actually relatively new to. Uh, and I have learned so much from the, uh, lady science team and from other historians of science, uh, about, uh, how, how to think about those systems. And given the state of the world now, uh, I think thinking about how we got here and how all the systems were created, and also the ability to imagine uh, how those how we could dismantle or change those systems in the future is really important and really a part of what we do as well. Ta-da! <laughs> so speaking of dismantling uh, oppressive structures and following in a previous tradition of dunking on tech bros. Um, <laughs> shall we go into our yes. one annoying thing to close out the episode? Um, at the end of every show, well, most shows, um, 
our hosts will unburden themselves about one thing in the news, their work, whatever, that's just really uh, annoying the hell out of them. And this is actually kind of a reverse annoying thing because it's uh, an annoying thing that everyone else has finally realized is annoying, I guess. Uh, it's Elon Musk. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Surprise! There's like confetti. <laughs> Yay! This, this was my suggestion. And, and part of like how it became an annoying thing that was a joyful thing was that for so freaking long, so many otherwise thoughtful, well-meaning, left-leaning, uh socially aware people I know were team Elon Musk. And I think part of that comes from the uh, idea of electric cars being this sort of beautiful goal of a lot of people who are concerned about climate change and about uh, reducing pollution in the world. And so there's this idea that, yay, there's someone who's like totally invested in... Um, selling electric cars, uh, and also space. Um, and that same kind of liberal I just described also tends to like the idea of space travel. Uh, and so those two things, I think, just came together to, like, emotionally get a lot of people on board with Elon Musk, who maybe wouldn't otherwise be on board with a uh, white South African tech bro asshole. But recently, um, there was some reporting, um, particularly by uh, the um, team behind the Reveal podcast, about uh, problems at the Tesla plant um, where they make the cars and serious uh, um, safety issues there. And Elon Musk responded by going batshit on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> And then, like, the universe realized, oh, oh, this guy is a crazy person. And now everyone is team Elon Musk is the worst. Well, I wouldn't say everybody. <laughs> no, not everybody. No, God, no. No, because there's also been a lot of Elon Musk fanboys uh, who have gone after everyone dunking on Elon Musk. Yeah, and his response was largely going after women reporters and women scientists. Yes. Um, yes. And the way that those things work on in the Twitter world is that if you have someone like Elon Musk who has millions of followers and he goes after or just tweets something snarky or rude or vaguely attack-like, at someone who has less than less followers that or less uh, of a reputation that it becomes like an enormous pile on and that it doesn't end for days. And that's what he was doing. He was going after individuals on Twitter and his whole following of Silicon Valley tech bro wannabes just started piling on these women. And he kept doing this thing where he was saying, well, I'm not responsible for my followers. I can't determine what they do or whatever. And like, that's just such a cop out. And it's such a way to shirk responsibility for what you've done. Like, if you see what's being said for people who tend to defend you and follow you, then you are kind of responsible for what they do and what their actions are, because you've given them a target and you've given them permission. Yeah, that's exactly right, that he gave them a target. Like, you don't have to at people that you disagree with and stick your followers on them. Like, maybe you didn't tell them to do that precisely, but, like, you're supposed to be extremely online. You know how it works. Like, come on, dude, right. what are you doing? And then, like, trotting out that uh, Grimes tweet about how she did it, she saw that he didn't, I don't know, exploit his workers or uh, engage in union busting or something was just like, just like launched me into the twilight zone. I was just like, what is happening? This is so weird. 
Yeah, it's like he couldn't help himself. Like the tweets just like kept coming and kept coming and he kept finding new people to target. Like it's insane. There was that one uh, uh, scientist from Australia who is specializing in nanotechnology and he decided to argue with her ad infinitum about whether nanotechnology was a real science or not. Right. That was that was so bizarre. Like, yeah, his like lol, nanotechnology isn't a real thing. And and it goes to show also, because like I feel like nanotechnology is like in a vacuum, sort of one of those things that tech fanboys are like, ooh, that's cool and vaguely Star Trek-y and uh would be on board with and but because, like, Elon Musk told people that nanotechnology isn't a real thing, suddenly all of those people that would otherwise be, like, if the right person said it, hey, nanotechnology is cool, uh, are suddenly like, oh, no, it doesn't exist, and this, like, poor Australian woman is a monster. Yeah. <laughs> and the other ridiculous side to what he was doing on Twitter for just, like, a sustained week of just doing this was he started uh, deciding he was going to talk... Uh, economics and politics with people uh, claiming that this man who is worth 19, I just looked it up in 2018, $19.7 billion, who shot his own fucking car into space with the space company that he owns. (laughs) And he crowdfunded a couch for himself, thinks that he's a socialist he called himself a socialist <laughs> and was arguing with people about socialism and capitalism on Twitter, claiming he's a socialist and saying, did you know that Karl Marx was a capitalist? He wrote an entire oh book about God. it. <laughs> that was my favorite it's, one. It's incredible. It was just like chef kiss. Beautiful. Yep. Yep. Um what you were saying uh, earlier, Rebecca, about um, the certain kind of liberal who thinks that, um, you know, if as long as you recycle and buy an electric car, we're not all going right. to die uh, right. in the forest fires that will ring the earth once everything's all dried <laughs> out. Um, and that same kind of liberal, like, is really interested in space exploration. It made me realize that, like, um, my even though my my own research is about space exploration like my personal like investment in that idea has gone like has just cratered like the more sort of radical i become the more i realize like how bad of an idea space exploration is (laughs) there's just like this huge divergence like it's a terrible idea first of all uh and but it is one of those like it's like a shiny toy for these people who are fans of Elon Musk's that he's like yeah. um he's living out a, their sort of let's be honest boyhood dreams there's mostly men we're talking about that are standing for Elon Musk on Twitter of like going to space and therefore he can't be criticized for anything people who worked for him that he laid off were literally tweeting about how much they loved him and supported his mission and it was just like Wow. You totally drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> he laid you off. <laughs> You're unemployed now. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we could probably just dunk on Elon Musk for a hundred years, but. Yeah. He's kind of dunking on himself anyway. There's some, like, spectacular self-owns on Twitter lately, so. Yeah, I, nobody really self-owns, like, super wealthy white dudes that are have become so disconnected from reality at this point. Karl Marx was a capitalist because he wrote a book called Capital. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's just, it's beautiful. (laughs) And that's, I think, kind of, I will say, that's what gives the slots Elon Musk into the category of annoying things and not, like, things that are going to make us all die in a fiery blaze oh of yeah life. i'd like to say um, which it seems like is the rest it of the was world. real hard to come up with something to be annoyed about <laughs> and not just like stare at an abject horror so right elon musk was a good target well done exactly. rebecca <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah. cool um well we'll just wrap up i guess um you, i mean if you want to tweet us your thoughts about elon musk you can we you know <laughs> 
we might not pay attention to them. But uh, <laughs> uh, don't forget about our pledge drive, which was basically the entirety of this episode. So <laughs> ladyscience.com slash donate is where you can find ways to donate and pledge. So if you liked our episode today, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. Uh, I also want to underscore how important leaving us ratings and reviews are. Um, questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea and more, visit LadyScience.com. Um, and until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at, at LadyXScience.